Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and welcome to the Influence Watch podcast. In this week's episode, we welcome Stephen Sokup, author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business, to discuss, well, woke capital and how political correctness captured big business. Isn't it helpful when a book does exactly what it says on the cover? Sokup is publisher and vice president of the Political Forum, an independent research provider. Uh, so, Stephen, I will ask you the classic question that you ask authors. What's your book about? Well, uh, as the title suggests, it's about woke capital. Um, thank you very much. First of all, thank you very much uh, for having me, Michael. And, and I want to uh, thank uh, Kristen Eastlick and Scott Walter as well uh, for all the help they've been in, in this long project. Um, but uh, the dictatorship of woke capital is about a an anti-democratic top-down movement uh being undertaken by some of the most powerful men and women in business uh, to change the definition of American business, uh, to change the definition of capitalism, uh, and most notably to change the relationship between the citizen and the state. So when you say change the definition of American capitalism, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? I mean, we, we think of, you know, it, our, our listeners might think of capitalists, you know, as people who are out in it to make money and to buy a big house and to buy a yacht and to... You know, if they're really successful, write a private jet. You know, what, what's the what's the new way of business? Well, I, uh, the old way, which you just described, is is most often associated uh, with Milton Friedman uh, and what's come to be known as the Friedman Doctrine, uh, which says that the responsibility of a corporate manager is to make as much money as possible for his shareholders uh, within the law. Uh, and within societal society's ethical norms. Um, that's traditionally how people have thought of, of capitalism. Um, over the past probably 40 years, uh, there's been a, a, an effort starting uh, in business schools and then uh, bleeding over, obviously, into business itself uh, to change that definition, to add different players to the game, uh, to say that shareholders are not the primary uh, interest of a corporation, uh, that there are other stakeholders who matter as much, if not more. So just for, for our listeners, let's take a step, take one step back. So we mentioned shareholders, and this gets into the definition of what is a public company versus what is a private company. If you could just sort of talk us through that, what's a public company and where do shareholders fit in a public company? Well, a, a public company is a company that's traded on uh, one of the uh, public uh, stock exchanges. Um, a company like that- Electric. General Electric, sure. General Electric, General Motors, uh, Coca-Cola. It's a company that probably started out privately held uh, and got big enough and need, had significant enough capital needs uh, that it filed for an initial public offering. Uh, it issued shares uh, for a certain stock price, uh, and now it is owned uh, by the shareholders. Mm -hmm. And then, so how do shareholders... Because this gets into what the the how of how political correctness captured big business. How do shareholders influence how a company actually runs? Shareholders are supposed to be the ultimate arbiter uh, of how a company functions. Um, corporate managers uh, and corporate directors are all responsible to the shareholders, uh, and once a year. Uh, 
they have a uh, they file a proxy statement, uh, and then they have a an annual meeting where all the shareholders are welcome uh, to attend. Um, and if any of the shareholders have an issue with the way the company has been run, they can propose uh, to change that. They can uh, write and submit what is called a shareholder proposal. Um, you have to have a certain amount of stock and you have to have held it for a certain amount of time uh, in order to submit a proposal. Uh, but um, generally speaking, uh, once the proposal is submitted, um, it's put on the proxy statement and all of the shareholders uh, up and down the company have a right to vote on that in proportion to how much uh, of the stock they own. So so like if you own 20% of the company, your vote is worth just for simplicity, approximately 20% of the voting power. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that brings us to this notion of ESG, environmental social corporate governance. Before we discuss how it works, what is it? <laughs> well, uh, as you said, yeah, ESG stands for environmental, social, and corporate governance. Uh, and this is... Um, the contemporary version of what used to be called socially responsible investing. Uh, socially responsible investing uh, was an investment theme uh, that came out of the late 1970s and early 1980s South Africa divestment movement. Mm -hmm. um, students. This, this, was this was back when South Africa was ruled by uh, the racist white minority, correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, students and uh, quite often uh, professors at various universities uh, would ask their school uh, to divest any school funds uh, from companies that did business in South Africa. Uh, and the idea was that they could therefore starve the beast. And, and, this, was, uh, and this was a lot of major public companies at the time because oh, sure. South Africa is a major uh, commodities producer. Yeah, uh, South Africa has, uh, as you said, is a major commodities producer, uh, diamonds, gold, uh, etc. So a, a lot of companies did business uh, with the Republic of South Africa. And um, the students and, uh, as I said, a, a lot of the professors uh, pressured universities to divest. Um, and that evolved into what we know or what we knew as socially responsible investing, uh, which was uh, a fairly anodyne uh, bipartisan um, attempt to align a person's values with their investments. If you were willing uh, to give up a portion of your return on investment to make sure that you could sleep at night knowing that your values were being reflected by your portfolio, uh, then that's what you did. You and your advisor or you uh, and your asset management company. Uh, so, so, like you, so like I could, you know, I, I mean, like I have a 401k. I'm sure a lot of our listeners may have mutual funds, 401ks, other thrift savings things that are invested in the stock market. Uh, so with these old social, these old fashioned, socially responsible investment vehicles, it was I, if I freely decided that, you know what, I can't even tangentially support, whether it's the apartheid regime in South Africa, the tobacco industry, the, um, you know, the firearms industry, whatever, I can put my mutual, my funds in these socially responsible investment products and they won't invest in them. Correct? Am, am I, am I right? That's correct. They screened out the companies that you would find uh, to be uh, ethically offensive. Uh, you know, if you were investing on behalf of a Catholic diocese or on behalf uh, of a religious order, uh, then you and your advisor would screen out the companies that are connected to uh, 
abortion in any way, uh, whether it be funding for uh, Planned Parenthood or uh, making products that are used in abortions, you would screen those companies out. Uh, and if that caused you uh, to have a lower return on investment, that was the price you were willing right, that, to pay. That, that, was, that was what you accepted in exchange for not participating in those industries. Absolutely. That's exactly how it was. Um, long so what, about the... Oh, I was going to say, so So, what, make, what makes modern ESG different than that? Well, starting about uh, the turn of the century, um, a lot of very powerful and very wealthy people uh, and a lot of people connected to global organizations, starting with the United Nations, uh, decided that they wanted their socially responsible investments to have a little more teeth. Um, they wanted specifically uh, to address climate change, and they wanted this to be something more aggressive uh, than simply screening themselves, you know, screening their portfolios to be free of fossil fuel companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so what they did was they created this system uh, whereby activist shareholders um, and Quite often for our, for our for our listeners who might not know what is, what is an act I mean what is an activist shareholder? Well, uh, generally, uh, an activist shareholder is somebody who buys the stock of a company uh, to make a change uh, at the company. Uh, mm -hmm. Most often, uh, these activists are associated uh, with uh, with market function. Um, if, they, they want a different manage they want different management they want some different right. practices right yeah the, the term hostile takeover if if I buy enough shares of the stock of your company uh, and decide <clears throat> and that gives me the ability to leverage uh, my power to force out the management and put my management in then essentially I take over the company that's what an activist shareholder did uh, but the new activists uh, beginning uh, around 2005, I would say, uh, started pushing uh, not for change directed at purely financial or economic ends, but at change directed at social ends. Uh, and, and very often you'd find these activists buying shares of stock specifically, uh, not to hold the stock, not to profit from the stock, but specifically to confront it about its uh, social and political practices. Uh, and, and so this new era uh, of socially responsive responsible investing began uh, as more of an aggressive and more of a confrontational uh, thread than the, the uh, previous socially responsible investing. Uh, and go ahead, you're going to ask. Something. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I was going to. So so this starts in the mid, you know, this sort of picks up some steam in the mid 2000s. And then like, again, I, I sort of remember, you know, you get like PETA would go to McDonald's and complain about how they raise their animals or uh, you know, something like that. And then, but it really sort of reaches escape velocity, if you, if you will, kind of in the mid to late 2010s. Am I, am I, am I getting the timeline right here? Uh, yeah, I would say, uh, early to mid. Um, but, uh, what you'd have is these activists who were trying to change the corporations. And, and that's the, the, the line of demarcation that we have to draw between what what's called socially responsible investing uh, and what is called ESG, uh, is that the goal of the first was to assuage your conscience. The goal of the second is to compel companies to behave in a manner that the activists see fit. Mm -hmm. And then, so who, who are the major because I mean, it's it's 
hard to get a get a sense unless you really know how all this works of the degree to which this ESG mentality has taken over institutional investment. So who who are the entities and who are the key people who are pushing this sort of broad agenda inside corporate boardrooms? Um, that's probably changed, uh, you know, over the last nine months uh, since I started writing the book. Uh, and it probably will evolve a little bit more uh, in the near future. Um I, you know, that's the nice thing about being on the Influence Watch podcast is I can direct people uh, to Influence Watch and say this is an enormously wonderful resource. And uh, we, where I appreciate I'll, the plug you gave us in the book. Yeah, well, as I said, this is a, this is an enormously valuable resource. Um, anyone and everyone who's involved uh, in in this politic politicization uh, of business uh, has a little blurb uh, in uh, Influence Watch. Um, right now, I would say the biggest players. Uh, are the passive, the big three passive asset management firms? Uh, before, and the, before you before you proceed, if you could def, uh, tell us what a pass what a passive versus an active management firm is. Happy to do so. Um, an active management firm uh, will create a, a portfolio or a fund uh, based on uh, the stocks that it believes uh, are going to be. Uh, most profitable uh, and deliver the, the greatest shareholder value over uh, a certain period of time. So, so uh, if, they, I, if, I may, if I may use a sort of silly example from recent sort of public attention, if you were day trading GameStop during that whole thing, you were basically playing a very short term active management role. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically you pick and choose the stocks that you want uh, to be in your portfolio. Um, passive uh, asset management, uh, by contrast, uh, is um, is uh, asset management that is based uh, specifically on indexing, um, which means that uh, so when, I, when if, I buy when I buy in my four hundred one k, if I have let's say I have an S and P five hundred index fund. I'm putting my money in the hands of a passive asset manager. Correct. Um, you are buying a ownership stake in the fund, and the fund is using your money to buy uh, percentages of shares of all of the companies in the index. Um, and so they hold all of the companies in the index. Uh, they can't sell them. Uh, they can't buy anything else. It's just it, it's they're built to reflect uh, how the index does. And this was uh, and, and still is an incredibly important tool uh, for average investors because this gives, you know, uh, mom and pop Joe it's, six it's pack. The, inf- it's the full it's, you, you know, when, when when one invests in such a thing, one is taking advantage of the entire wisdom of the crowd. Yeah. Now, one is also exposed to the madness of the crowd, but one is taking advantage of the whole wisdom of the crowd. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea is to create a diverse portfolio. Uh, and, and this type of diversity was never uh, available uh, to the average investor uh, before. And, and so index uh, investments are an enormous step forward, or at least they were an enormous step forward for most investors. Um, what has happened uh, over the past few years, however, as these... Uh, passive management firms have grown more and more uh, powerful uh, is they've started to uh, deviate somewhat uh, from 
what their original passive intent was supposed to be. Um, the three largest, uh, what we call the big three, are uh, BlackRock, which has uh, some $9 trillion in assets under management, uh, Vanguard, which has some $7 trillion in assets under management, and State Street, uh, which runs about $5 trillion. So, so together, these three companies uh, hold uh, more than $20 trillion in assets that they leverage uh, against the companies uh, that they hold in uh, their portfolio. Now, as I said, uh, in traditional... Uh, social investing. Uh, if you didn't like a stock, you sold it. Uh, if the management was not responsive to you, uh, you got out of the company. If you thought it was going to lose money, uh, you wouldn't buy it. Uh, but since these index funds hold every single uh, stock and are not able to sell them, what they do uh, is they make it their business to change management. Um, if if the management is failing, if the board is failing, uh, they become very activist uh, and, and they push uh, shareholder proposals to replace these. And, they, and, uh, and, and now in, and in very recent years, they've taken a more aggressive step than to use this activist position to push environmental stuff. Is that yeah, uh, environmental, social and governance um, beginning, uh, I think. The first such letter was last January, January 2020, uh, and then he repeated himself in, in 2021. Larry Fink, uh, who is the he's CEO, the of BlackRock, right? Right, he's the CEO of BlackRock, so the head of the the largest, most powerful asset management firm in the world, um, sent a letter to all clients and to all companies uh, which uh, his firm holds, and told them that going forward, he intended for uh, the primary investment directive uh, followed by uh, the, the managers in his firm to be uh, sustainability. They were not going to judge companies uh, on uh, f financial data, first and foremost. They were not going to judge them uh, on anything except how well they're preparing for the transition uh, to a carbon-free economy. Uh, or at least that's primarily what they be, would be judging them on. Uh, wow. and, and yeah, so again, you've got this enormously powerful company with an enormous amount of wealth behind it, uh, actively seeking uh, to pressure companies to focus not on uh, their day-to-day, -day, you know, making of widgets, but to focus instead on how they're going to uh, – make the transition uh, to a carbon-free economy. Uh, and, and that's an enormous shift uh, in, in the way... Yeah, and it's entirely... A, and I, I mean, to do that would be unprecedented. To expect companies to know what they're going to do when that unprecedented thing happens is also unprecedented. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and the, the, the kicker is that um, it's not just that they're going to ask these companies to do that. They expect them to report uh, every year, along with their financial information, uh, what they're doing. Uh, and they've helped uh, create a various uh, a, a number of bodies to monitor and to uh, explain the companies. This is entities like the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Yes, right? uh, that, that's one of them. Yes, SASB is probably the best known and the most prominent. Uh, and SASB is an interesting case because uh, it is, as I say in the book, more or less uh, a subsidiary of, of Bloomberg Incorporated. Um, Bloomberg, as Michael Mike Bloom Bloomberg, the former 
Democratic presidential candidate and mayor of New York. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Michael Bloomberg became involved uh, shortly after uh, it was started. Um, most of the funding for the operation has come from Bloomberg. Uh, he was the chairman of the board of directors of SASB for six or seven years. Uh, and, and what they have done, what SASB has done is create uh, the standards that they expect companies uh, to abide by uh, with respect to uh, reporting uh, their sustainability data uh, to the asset managers. Uh, and, and obviously, these standards uh, reflect Michael Bloomberg's politics, which are, are very, uh, you know, very Gnostic. Very environmentalist and broadly left progressive. Right. Um, so... I guess, you know, now that we've sort of outlined the broad strokes of the problem, what what can be done about it, especially at sort of this late date with all this? I mean, I mean, in, in the in the book, you you wait, you know, you lay ways you you're laying out who all the players are uh, or at least were nine months ago. Um, you know, you lay out that, you know, pushing this is like an 800 pound gorilla and opposing it is, a, is not very much of anything at all. <laughs> um, so what, what can, what can people do? Uh, is there anything that can be done? Uh, especially given that the federal regulatory apparatus is not going to be favorable uh, in the immediate future uh, to any action at that level uh, to uh, it, restoring that sort of old-fashioned neutrality in major social and political uh, political issues in corporate corporate America. Well, um, I will admit, uh, I will be the first to admit that it it is definitely uh, an uphill battle. Um, uh, I intentionally structured uh, the two chapters uh, on the players uh, in the ESG sustainability game uh, the way I did so that you would see that, you know, the people who are f in favor of politicizing uh, and weaponizing uh, capital, uh, you know, that chapter takes up 40, 45 pages. Uh, and the chapter on people who are against it and who are pushing back is five. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're not only outmanned, we're outgunned financially uh, considerably. Obviously, um, as I, $20 trillion <laughs> on one side. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we do have a, a few structural advantages. Uh, and among those advantages uh, is the fact that that the money that the $20 trillion that Larry Fink uh, and uh, BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard are using uh, is not their money. It's ours. Um, anybody who has invested in a Vanguard fund, uh, that's your money that he's trying that they're trying to leverage for their political ends. Um, you can do something about that. Uh, you can do something about that today. Um, and um, so that's one of the advantages that we have. Uh, another one of the advantages that we have is that um, the uh, the laws of uh, of economics are uh, essentially uh, simply mirrors of human nature, and human nature doesn't change. So the laws don't generally change very much either. Uh, and one of the laws says that uh, misallocation of capital uh, will, in the end, uh, result in serious capital loss. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether um, we're talking about uh, misallocation caused by corruption or by government intervention or, you know, by these, these, uh, 
Gnostic prophets who want to save the world. It's still misallocation of capital, and it will eventually uh, cause them uh, financial loss. Um, so I, I believe that markets are cyclical, and I believe that, uh, you know, eventually this it's will sort of, self-correct. Sort of like every, you know, just as mortgage-backed securities prove to not be an efficient allocation of capital over the long term, eventually the bill will come due for all of this progressive utopianism. Correct. And it's, it's funny that you should, should mention the, the mortgage backed securities. Um, because, uh, that was the financial crash in 2008 was sort of a precursor to this, uh, in that it told the financial services industry that it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, your federal government is going to take care of you. Uh, and the little people are going to get hurt. Um, that's going to be the case too. If, if we allow, uh, this to reach its natural uh, market cyclical end. If we allow the self-correction of markets uh, to bring Larry Fink low and to, to cause his company to have serious losses, yeah, just, just like the just like the the Bear Stearns guys, he's not going to be pushing an apple cart. He's going to be walking hat in hand to Congress. <laughs> right, but the 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 nine trillion dollars that he loses is yours and it's mine and it's you know everybody who has invested in in BlackRock funds. So. Uh, you know, my preference would be for uh, investors uh, and consumers uh, to uh, to learn what's going on, uh, to make themselves aware of how it's happening and why it's happening, uh, and to push back before uh, the market self-corrects. Because when the market self-corrects, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Um, but I believe that uh, you know, in the end, the markets will self-correct uh, and. Uh, so I, I think this will come to an in the end. Interests of not getting to that, to that, uh, you know, I mean, it's like a, it's like an out of control race car heading towards the wall. You'd, you'd rather it not hit it. Um, um, uh, to inform, inform the the citizenry and the investor public, uh, it is the dictatorship of woke capital. How political correctness captured big business. Uh, as of this moment, has it been taken down from Amazon? Yeah, it has not. <laughs> you can still, uh, ironically, buy it at, at Amazon. Um, you can buy it at EncounterBooks.com. Uh, you can buy it at Barnes & Noble. You can buy it just about anywhere books are sold. Uh, but if you appreciate the irony of Amazon selling you a book uh, with uh, the company lampooned on the cover, uh, then go ahead and buy it from Amazon. Well, uh, Stephen, uh, we'd like to thank you once again for joining us. Uh, that's our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those re ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if those ratings come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.